Hello and welcome to Telling Stories. My name is James Troopany. This is a Troopany Show podcast and today we go back to our story of the Fabulous Kangaroos and the birth of tag team wrestling, looking at some of the most important tag teams in the history of pro wrestling at its very beginning. It's Zenith, if you will. When we left you, Al Costello had formed a team with Carl Von Brewer as the Internationals and we had left the Kangaroo era. But in 1967, he decides to bring back the team. And that's where we start our story today. After the internationals, Costello floated around with several partners, but he decided it was time to bring back the Kangaroos in 1967. He contacted Tinker Todd, a British wrestler he thought would fit the mould. He changed his name to Roy St. Clair, no relation to the Cornish St. Clair family, and took up an Australian persona. With the Kangaroos back in full swing, they set about taking on the territories they'd missed out the first time round. George Crybaby Cannon, who managed the internationals, was brought in as an added heater, and they would prove a success heading first to where Cannon would become a national star, the original Sheik's big-time wrestling in Detroit. They also got back into the swing of the heat, forcing another right in Cincinnati, where the predominantly African-American crowd did not take kindly to them spitting in the eye of Brobo Brazil. After being chased out of the building and sleeping in a dumpster to avoid detection, they returned to the car the following morning and found all four tyres slashed. The team was not long for this world, apparently. St. Clair returned to Blighty after six months with a severe case of homesickness, and after a knee injury ended his career. Costello found a third partner in Don Kent, a Michigan native who took up the Australian gimmick well. So well, in fact, it eclipsed the popularity of the original Kangaroos. Kent was born Leo Joseph Smith in 1933. A natural athlete, he was recruited by the Boston Red Sox straight out of high school as a catcher, but was advised by his father to go to college. Upon graduating St. Benedict's in Kansas, he began working for the Veterans Administration, where he would be trained by leaping Larry Sheen. Kent would have a solo career before the Kangaroos. He was booked as a sadistic heel and gained a great success in Arizona. That helped him understand the art of heat and made him a perfect choice for the often willfully evil Australian team. Keeping his American accent for the promos, what was more disrespected in American life than a turncoat? They had a great run as an established team. After a while, a pattern would emerge. If a company wanted to debut a new title, the Kangaroos would come in with new belts. The Ruse had a reputation of being world beaters, and it meant the company didn't have to run a a disruptive, time-consuming tournament. They would be awarded the IWE Trans World Wrestling Alliance World Tag Team Championship on a tour of Japan, dropping the gold to Tomiboro and Thunder Sugiyama. Just as it had worked in Florida years earlier, it was a neat promotional trick that gave the team a sense of dominance and menace. The version of the team that would find a natural home on the other side of the Pacific Rim, working all over Asia and Australia. They also worked Canada for the Nova Scotia territory of the ESA, as well as stints back into the WWA for Dick the Bruiser, and a steady appearances for Vince McMahon Sr.'s WWWF. As well as having the most diverse appeal and travel time, they would also be the most popular until a return trip to Cincinnati ended Costello's in-ring career. Having caused another riotous response, an angry fan threw a fire extinguisher from the balcony. It hit Costello in the hip, leaving him requiring replacement surgery. The fan was charged and spent 10 days in prison and fined $15 for damaging the extinguisher, not Costello. Costello, it appeared, was done. So it came to a bit of a surprise then when he would reappear in 1975 as a manager, and even more of a surprise at the tender age of 56 when he would bring back the Kangaroos for one last blast with Tony Charles. They even pulled the same old tricks in the territories that had yet to see them. This Tony Charles passed away in 2015. He was a very technical British wrestler in the mould of Les Thornton and Billy Robinson, two long-term opponents from the US. He was an ideal Costello partner, technically sound in catch style with non-American roots. They trod the boards in much the same manner as their predecessors. In fact, they even did the same angles. Moving into Carlos Colon's WWC, one of the few territories they hadn't been to, they were announced as the WWC World Tag Team Champions. They would defend those titles throughout 1977 and keep on chasing them for another two-year stretch. Once again, the legitimacy of the Kangaroos was established a title, in this case one was still defended some 38 years later. 
this version of the team would come to an end in 1978 as Charles went solo once again and Costello began managing. The next version of the team would bring Don Kent back into the fold as well as the addition of New Zealander Bruno Becker. I guess he passed for Australian. Becker would head down under after a short run. He was to be replaced by Montreal mainstay Bob Della, now to become Johnny Hefferman, apparent cousin to the Kangaroos' original Roy. They would hit Bay Dirt quickly, upending the funks for the WWC World Tag Team title in Puerto Rico. A pair of belts Amarillo brothers had for 18 months on May the 1st, 1982. Costello was still in charge of the management duties and would guide them into championship wrestling from Florida in 1983. He would also farm off to younger manager J.J. Dillon while away on business. When he came back, at least in the storyline, the Kangaroos preferred their new face manager in an effort to explain Costello's management career coming to an end. CFW had a lot of forethought. They actually tied up loose ends very well, enabling Costello to ride off into the sunset of a 30-year career, well over 20 of it as part of one team in one way or another. Quite a remarkable run. While they did not invent tag team wrestling, they were the first team to truly sell themselves as the whole package, top to bottom as a unit. From matching outfits, the pre-match rituals, the synchronised foreign objects, the publicity shots, the willingness to sell themselves, and their slick presentation in the ring. That was even before they got near opponents, whom they treated with disdain at best. The Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame welcomed them in 2003 as the very first tag team to be balloted in. One last time, they were champions on arrival. So where did all the tag teams go? And indeed, what made tag team wrestling itself seem forgotten? Who is the natural heirs to the heat-getting brilliance of the ruse? Well, the undoing of tag team wrestling in the mainstream has mainly come along since the Attitude Era. While the older territories of the 1990s often delivered quality tag teams, the WF started to move on in a different direction. In the early 90s, the tag team division was pretty woeful from where it had been just a few years short years earlier. Part of the problem was forward motion. The Legion of Doom had been there, done that, and gone their separate ways. The Nasty Boys had gone back to WCW. In some cases, it was age and overexposure. Demolition called it a day more or less the same time Bill Axe Edie had more than his fair share of health issues. Some of it was down to solo success. Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart were clearly ready to move on from the Rockers and the Hart Foundation, respectively. By the time the Steiner brothers turned up, they really only had the Beverly brothers, the Quebecers and the Wild Samoans to contend with. While some of the teams that came in over the next five years were solid, the Smoking Guns and the Godwins, for instance, none of them were spectacular. In fact, the undoubted star of the vision at the time was the management skills of Sonny. With this less than stellar set of stars, one of the main reasons for having a tag team division was no longer there. Exciting and unpredictable action. The main reason, a safe place for potential stars to learn and grow, was there, but all of these 90s tag teams, only Billy Gunn had anything more than a modicum of success as a singles wrestler. The tag team division did have some shining lights. Owen Hart and Davey Boy Smith had a shared sense of humour, but they also had great chemistry. While not as a genre defining as the British Bulldogs or the Hart Foundation, they had plenty of character and an ongoing bickering in-laws vibe that made them very watchable and incredibly over. Vince had hit upon the basic premise of the tag team titles for the next few years as set teams made their way to solo act, looking to use the division as a lift-off platform. When Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels became champions, and sometime later Austin and Dude Love, the nature of the tag team division changed. The reliance on highly specialised units waned, and the reason for the belt's existence became to elevate singles wrestlers. WWE also found they were saving money. Tag teams cost twice the cash, as a single wrestler does. Matching gear, matching travel arrangements, it all takes time to set up for what was perceived to be minimal gain. It wasn't until recently then tag team wrestling on the indie scene in the US has really pushed the envelope forward, and tag team specialists like the Usos and the Ascension have brought back prominence to the WWE title belts in a traditional sense. WCW, always strong on tag team wrestling, did have strong teams more or less until the end of the company. The Southern Wrestling tag team streak ran through the company like letters through a stick of rock. By the time the outsiders turned up, they were firing on all cylinders with the Steiners, the Road Warriors, Public Enemy, Harlem Heat, numerous others less worthy but highly decorated teams, like the American Males. While the importance of the tag team titles slipped through the Bischoff era, it was still important to the company it had been in the heydays of the Horsemen. 
The problems with WCW wasn't the tag team scene per se, but just a general decline in the company, causing the scene to fall apart, just as the rest of the company was unravelling. And we'll call it it for today on our story of the kangaroos and the death of tag team wrestling. Though, we have a little more to talk about. The Eliminators and ECW's tag team scene in the 1990s. I will get to that next week on Telling Stories. Thank you for listening to Telling Stories today. My name is James Troopany. I will see you soon. Uh, you can listen to our other show, The Troopany Show, and you can find our sponsors at PowerSlam TV and in the Empire Wrestling Magazine. Please go listen and read them. Music by Sheriff Lone Star and the Deputies of Heartbreak. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show, or the channel, Troopany Show on Twitter. And you can find us on Patreon, The Troopany Show, where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. <laughs>